0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Before you listen to this episode, I just want to let you know that we will be discussing heavy themes of violence and sexuality. So if you have little ones in the room, I would suggest that you listen to this privately at a different time because there are some strong themes running through this podcast. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: One, two, three, Mm
0: -hmm. go. Feminist, Mormon, Housewives, Feminist, Mormon. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing you another episode in the Year Polygamy series where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage and kind of find out how it relates to us today. And I'm really excited. I plugged this podcast in our last episode, where we talked a little bit about the Steptoe Expedition, but I'm so excited to bring on uh, the wonderful historian Joe Geisner. Joe, can you say hello?
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you very much, Lindsay. That's very nice of you.
0: Oh, thank you. I I just should say that if I were a drug addict, and history is my drug, you've been my dealer these past few weeks. You've been feeding me some <laughs> great, great stuff.
1: Oh, you're good.
0: Um, can you tell us about yourself? Tell us what your interest in this topic is.
1: Well, do you want me to just be more general about Mormon history first and then specifically on this or? Sure.
0: Tell us, oh. tell us about just your involvement with Mormon history in general.
1: Yeah, I, um, was actually quite lucky when I was, uh, 17 years old, my mom and my sister and myself went on a trip to do genealogy. And, uh, her grandfather, I'm sorry, my grandfather, uh, lived in Wisconsin, and my grandmother was actually born in Wisconsin. So we made the whole trip back to Minnesota, Wisconsin to see family. And on our way back, we stopped and spent about a week in Salt Lake. And I did all the typical uh, tour, history tour things, uh, went to the Beehive House, Temple Square, uh, the museum used to actually be next to the tabernacle when I was a teenager and uh, went through that, um, just when every, you know, walked all around. Uh, and I happened to go into the church office building, uh, the big building, and I was standing there looking at a directory for the historian's office, and it had a list of Leonard and then all the other people that worked for him and ron walker who was quite young at the time because i was only 17 walked up to me and said can i help you and i being a smart alec 17 year old kid i said sure i'd like to talk to the church historian
0: <laughs> and
1: he said he said uh, i think i can work that out for you so uh we went upstairs to the the historian's office and Leonard's secretary was there at the desk, and I'm not sure who that was at the time, but Ron said, uh, this young man would like to speak with Brother Arrington. Is that possible? And she said, I think it's possible. So she r- rings into Leonard's office and says, uh, there's a young man here who would like to speak with you. And uh, Leonard invited me in sat me down, and, you know, at the time, it felt like an hour. I don't know if it was fifteen; It was longer than 15 minutes. It had to have been a half hour. It, ha- it Maybe it was an entire hour. But the man was amazing. He was gracious. He was kind. He listened to me. He pulled books off of his shelf. Um, I I was asking – I remember one of the things I asked him was – what he thought of Joseph Fielding Smith's Essentials in Church History, wow. and should I and should I read it? And he said, "No, we have something better." He was again very gracious; didn't say the things he should have said, probably. But he said, "No, we have something better," and he pulled off the shelf Story of the Latter Day Saints, and handed it to me and let me look at it, and then I handed it back to him. So as soon as I got home, I told, uh, or actually maybe as soon as I got back at the motel room, i told my mom all about it. So for that Christmas, because um, my birthday had already passed, for that Christmas I got uh, Story of the Latter-day Saints as my Christmas present.
0: Oh, <laughs> I love that story. That's great. Yeah. 17 yeah, years he- old.
1: He was a, an an amazing person. I, I I was lucky enough to uh get to visit with him quite a bit. He would always attend Sunstone there in Salt Lake. And so I would get to visit with him quite a few times before he passed away.
0: So so you obviously had a desire to study history at a young age. And
1: so then on my mission, um instead of eating, I bought books. And would ship these big, huge boxes of books home.
0: Where did you that, serve? Pardon? Where did you serve?
1: Uh, it was the Colorado Denver Mission. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. We covered uh, pretty much the entire state. We covered up into Cheyenne and Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, so we covered main, the main population area of Wyoming. We covered a third of Nebraska, a quarter of Kansas, and down into even New Mexico, um, on the eastern or western, I think it's western side of New Mexico. I never went down there. So, but I did serve out in Kansas. Uh, but anyway, back then, the, each ward, we had, there were seventies, uh, local seventies. And so, and each ward had these. And in at least each stake and sometimes even wards had what were called seventies bookstores. So, um, and they gave great deals to us missionaries. Um, you know, they basically sold us, the, they turned around and sold us the book for what it cost. I think I bought History of the Church, the seven-volume set of History of the Church for like $10 a volume. No, no, it was, I think, $5 a volume. So I paid like $35 for the entire set. Um, and, and so I was just buying all this stuff and devouring it. And, uh, so I did that and then got off, got home off my mission, went back to BYU, um, started reading in special collections, started reading dialogue and down in the reading room started reading Sunstone, uh, graduated from BYU, came home, well, got married, came home, um, and then continued Uh, And I was really good friends with some of the main people. Matter of fact, one of them was my Sunday school teacher, uh, Lynn Whitesides. At the time, she was Lynn Knavel.
0: Yeah, we Um, just had her on a few weeks ago.
1: Oh, great. Well, she was my Sunday school teacher when I was a teenager. Oh,
0: fun. And
1: so I had that connection with Sunstone. So I was always there in the office when I'd make my yearly trips out to Utah after, after BYU and um get the latest gossip and the latest papers that were circulating and met all kind of, you know great amazing people from Mike Quinn Mike like I said Leonard Mike Marquardt um and uh all the dialogue people and um so I just kept re- and and I really got into the new mormon history and so I read everything in the new mormon history uh, and I was buying books. I, I have tried to buy everything in the New Mormon history genre, then along with, uh, um, whatever I could afford from 19th century Mormonism, which, uh, is not cheap. It's usually very expensive to find stuff there. So, Trying to be on a budget, you you pick and choose what treasures you can find. Um, with the Utah War period and and uh, Reformation handcarts, all of that, this one this period of time we're talking about, um, I think my two or three there's three people that have really influenced me, and those would be Will Bagley who would probably be the the most important, Uh, then Bill McKinnon, who you talked about in your last podcast, and the third would be David Bigler, who I actually had lunch with this last Tuesday in Sacramento.
0: And we're going to talk a little bit about his work today, too.
1: Great. So they've really been the, you know, they've been the ones who've really taught me about this period of time.
0: Well, I'm so glad because that's the period of time that we're going to focus on. Now, when I think polygamy, I do not think about the Utah War. I just don't, I haven't connected the two. But recently, and in, you know, in my research, and especially after some of the essays you've sent me, I've really seen the connection of how polygamy is really inseparable to these conflicts. And I want to talk about the Utah War. Now, something that you should know is I've, I've often called it Johnston's Army. And do you want to talk about Calling it Johnson's Army
1: for a second, sure, sure, um, and that's you know that's a real common thing for uh, for us Mormons to do. I and I I particularly like what Bill McKinnon uh, wrote in at Swords Point. This it's it's real short. He said, over the centuries, Mormons and Utahns have tended to dub the federal side Johnson's Army, a u- ubiquitous label. But one peculiar to Utah. As I see it, Johnston's army tends to trivialize, if not ridicule, the campaign. And so I have avoided it except in quotations. The U.S. Army and many military historians prefer Utah expedition.
0: Yeah, because we've called it Johnston's army, Buchanan's blunder, and these are all Mormon centric terms.
1: Exactly. That's correct. Um, you know, as I, somebody, actually a mutual friend of ours was doing a review on a book, and I don't remember even the title. It's a, I don't remember anything about the book, actually. But, uh, the author, and it's a brand new book, at least 2013 publication date. And throughout the book, I guess the authors or author, uh, continually calls the Utah expedition Johnston's army. And, and really they're the U.S. Army. And, and so people were being critical of him in his review of why he was being critical about calling it Johnston's Army. And I said to him, I said, well, what you need to have as your response to those people is, would we want people calling the Mormon Battalion Brigham's Army or Brigham's Blunder or whatever, you know? I mean, my wife's, she has three ancestors that are in the Mormon battalion. I have multiple books on the Mormon battalion. It's been one of my hobbies to collect anything on the Mormon battalion. And we're proud. I mean, I've taught my children to be proud of their ancestors who were in the Mormon battalion. I would never think of calling them a derogatory term. And so, again, calling the U.S. Army uh, Johnston's Army is a derogatory term. There's no way around it.
0: Yeah, speaking we- of Sunstone, I'm actually going to be on a panel with Will Bagley and Todd Compton, reviewing Todd Compton's book, A Frontier Life. And the premise of my critique is going to be about how we talk about indigenous people and women. And so I definitely appreciate and understand um how terms matter and how the way that we talk about things from perspectives matter. And a lot of Mormon history, unfortunately, comes from the white European Per- perception and especially Utah history, at least when I was growing up in Utah, comes from the Mormon perception and perspective. So I think that's really helpful when we start. Um, let, let's start, let's start before the Utah expedition. Do you want to kind of set the scene for us? In the series, we've been talking about the saints arriving in Utah and sort of their announcement of plural marriage the growing tensions with the government. But one thing that struck me is uh, I'm kind of, I guess, confused about Brigham's involvement because on the one hand, it seems that he really wants to keep the U S government away from Utah. And yet on the other hand, you know, we see him reaching out to Johnston's army when they come in the Utah expedition. we see him trying to send them salt at one point and they reject it and then we see him trying to hold them up in the canyons and thwart their way. So what was Brigham's attitude towards the U.S. government in 1850s Utah?
1: He, there's that famous quote where he says that if the government will leave the saints alone for 10 years, that he would be able to, uh, they would be able to be on their own and and the implication, at least the, the belief I have, the implication was that the, um, saints could withstand an invasion of, um, the United States. The, the Mormons, when they, I mean, they, they left the United States. There's the, the funny quote by Brannon when he comes around into San Francisco Bay. And at the time it was called Yerba Buena Bay. Um, after sailing, which, again, some of my wife's ancestors were on the ship Brooklyn. And when they come around uh, Cape Horn, I think it's right, Cape Horn, and come up into Yerba Buena um, Bay, the, the day before, Stockton had uh, taken over the village of Yerba Buena and raise the American flag, and as they come through the Golden Gate, uh, Brandon says, there's that damn flag again. Um, these people really were leaving the United States. They they had seen themselves as a persecuted people, um, and they put the responsibility directly on the government of the United States all the way from the death of Joseph Smith, being driven from what they saw as being driven from Ohio, then what they saw as being driven from Missouri, and, um, and then Illinois. So they didn't see themselves as Americans anymore. They saw themselves as Mormons. Um, and I'm guessing they didn't think of themselves as much Mormons as, as uh, members of the true church. And, and the state, and what they called themselves was the state of Deseret. And, and that went from Western Colorado all the way to San Bernardino, California out to San Diego. And that was the country that Brigham Young wanted to set up. So any U.S. soldiers, employees, uh, surveyors, anybody who came from the government of the united states was seen as an enemy immediately and and with suspicion um brigham had spies everywhere and as you talked about in your previous podcast uh the um maori talks about that that you know he can't get together with uh his uh lover um brigham young's daughter-in-law because there's spies everywhere. Well, he wasn't exaggerating. There were spies everywhere. And, and Young had spies all the way in Washington, D.C. Um, so when these guys came, uh, from Stansbury surveying group to, um, Steptoe, which you talked about, uh, to then to, um, the, the Utah expedition, these were all seen as invasions, um, at the very least. And, and, uh, Brigham Young's rhetoric, um, particularly for the, the, uh, Utah expedition was that he was saying that, that, um, these soldiers were there to come to destroy, to kill all the, the Mormon people. And, and that was what he was teaching. um,
0: And and let's just be clear. So before, you know, the Utah expedition comes, there are at least four other expeditions that we know of. And they weren't there to invade the Mormon territory. They were there for other reasons. Some were on their way to California. Some were there to deal with Indians. I think some, you know, stopped in Utah because they were concerned about Mormons. But their main objectives weren't around Mormons. Is that correct?
1: That's – well – but, well, it always played in to the Mormons. Okay, Stansbury, um, you know, there, there, there's the, all the stuff about with Stansbury, where Stansbury and Powell both would put up stakes and, uh, for surveying. And then when they would come back to, you know, as they would move around doing it, the, the stakes would just disappear. They'd be gone. And, um, Brigham Young said that the church owned all the property, which technically meant he owned all the property of the state of Deseret. Um, and having it surveyed meant that land could be bought, sold, uh, settled on those kinds of things. When land became, when land was surveyed, Brigham would lose control of that land. A, a great book about this whole thing would be Forgotten Kingdom by David Bigler. Um, and he details how Brigham constantly fought any land being surveyed. And, uh, you know, bl- blood would be shed over that. And actually quite a bit of blood was shed over that issue. Of, of non-Mormons coming in and saying they owned land. Um, and uh, so so it was not necessarily, from the Mormons' perspective, it was not benign. Um, they saw it as a, a threat to their way of, of wanting to create the state of Deseret. Um, so, and so realistically, it was.
0: So let's come back to that because I'm interested in how You know, it's interesting that the Mormons felt that the land was theirs when they're sort of colonizing Indian territory already. But we see Mormons having this sort of unique and strange partnership and sometimes rivalry with the Indian tribes that were already living there. Can you explain to us about Brigham Young? Brigham Young is a territorial governor. How did he get that appointment? And then how was it taken away from him?
1: Well, it wasn't really taken away from him for starters, but, um, a president, okay. The president of the United States, um, chooses territorial offices. It's not like, uh, the states. And, and so with states, we get the people, we get to vote who are the representatives, whether it's the governor or the senators or, uh, even judges, um, But with a territory, um, except for probate justice judges, uh, the judges are appointed federally by the president, uh, the, um, governor. So, yeah, so President Pierce appointed Brigham Young. And after four years, Pierce had been getting reports that federal, from federal officials, from soldiers, different people, that had been there just saying that you know R- Young was running a theocracy, and Pierce essentially had had his his fill of young and so uh after four years and and that was his term that was brigham Young's term that uh he was going to appoint somebody else, so yeah I know there's there's a feeling among people that that Brigham Young was kicked out or uh, whatever, and and no, he had served just four years. Um, he was not um, circumvented, He, you know, none of those things.
0: So I find it interesting he even had the appointment to begin with. Was that a political maneuver because the Mormons were there and they knew that they had to assert some sort of control over the territory?
1: You, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the world on that particular appointment. But, um, it, it appears from everything that I've read that young, really was the person, you know, from a practical standpoint, he was the right person for the job. Um, the, the state of Deseret had made young, a, the governor, uh, they had filled all the positions of a Senate, uh, well with a legislature. Uh, they had set up all kinds of judges, uh, they had done all that. So when they um, they' set up the shadow government and they had set up all the different positions. And when they sent their petition to be a state, they the numbers that they were showing, were inflated numbers. Um, they padded their numbers and they were using all kinds of dead people's names and relatives. And, and I think they even made up some names. And uh, and they, when, with the petition to become a state, they basically said, oh, and by the way, if you won't let us be a state, then I guess we'll be a territory. But make sure that you put all of us in our positions. And Pierce threw all those names out except for Young. He kept Brigham Young as governor, but all the rest just went by the wayside. And that's when he started federally doing his federal appointments.
0: Okay. So, so tell us about let's talk about the Steptoe Expedition. I covered it a little bit in the last podcast, but mostly for the Victorian scandal. But tell us about the. Importance and the ramifications of the expedition.
1: Yeah, well, the purpose of it, um, was, and interrupt me if I'm repeating stuff that you said, but, um, the purpose of it was to investigate the murders of, um, Powell. I, I think he was, uh, lieutenant. Um, but he, his group was a surveying group. And he had actually, um, if I recall correctly, history, he actually discovered the Grand Canyon from a white person's standpoint. Obviously, um, the Indians known about it for thousands of years. But um, but Powell had discovered it for um, white people and had surveyed it, I believe, and actually had gone down it. So he was really an interesting person. But anyway, so he had come back. This was like his second, I think, second expedition. And he would come back to do more surveying. Um, and when he did that, um, his group, and I am not an expert on them, but anyway, his group uh, was attacked by, and everybody pretty much is in agreement, it was by a group of Indians. And um, they were killed. Now, now, obviously, some of them, because Tobin um, was not there. And he's, he's the interesting guy you talked a little bit about, but, um, who, um, had affections for Alice Young, Brigham Young's daughter. Um, but, uh, anyway, they were, they were massacred. And so Steptoe's expedition had three purposes. Uh, the one was, um, to get these, this uh stuff supplies and equipment, I believe to california um the second reason was to investigate the palmer the massacre the murders, and then the third was to find a a good way of getting from Salt Lake a better way anyway from Salt Lake to um california and so um Because of the late start, because animals were, were hurting and men were hurting, he decided he had to winter in, in Utah. And so, there was, uh, it was not easy to live in Utah. Um, you had droughts, uh, there was famine going on, um, it was a hard life. Then you had the cold winters. You'd have blizzards. You know, it was not an easy life. And, and so you've got people there who get there and they're going, this is not the place I thought it was supposed to be. And when you come from beautiful, lush green, um, England or Wales or Ireland, and then you, you get to desert, the great basin desert, um, you know, it's not what you dreamed of and what you were actually told. And so there was a large number of people that wanted to leave. And Steptoe got there at the right time for a lot of people wanting to to get out. And, it, again, going back to the property thing, what when you got to Utah, you basically had to give everything up financially to Brigham Young because you were in his debt for everything. For the property, for the building supplies, for the food on your table. Everything was owned by the church, which again was Brigham Young. And, and so you were at his mercy. Um, if you went through the perpetual immigration fund, again, you were in his debt. And so if you left, you're lucky if you got to leave with the shirt on your back. Um,
0: and we do have admonitions from Brigham, you know, his famous sermon where he tells his wives, listen, any of you can leave. Any of you can leave your husbands. But I think that this is good context for it because leaving wasn't an easy option. It wasn't like he was giving them a real choice.
1: Yeah. You, you were lucky. Like I say, you were lucky. And in fact, I've got, here's, uh, one of the soldiers wrote, um, okay, this is when uh, the Utah Expedition is at Fort Bridger in Wyoming. And so Jesse Gove, who was uh, one of the soldiers, he said that a party of 29 arrived and none of them had shoes on. He, he writes, he said they were almost in a state of nudity. And now they were trying to get back to the United States. They were leaving Utah, and they were trying to get back. He said the kind-hearted soldiers clothed nine uh, of these uh, refugees in a day after their arrival and gave them at least $200 in clothes and money. Um, in a few days, another 150 refugees arrived, but um, these refugees actually were in much better condition. They came with teams. They had eggs and, and things like that. Another soldier says that another group of refugees came a few days after that, and they had wag, they came in wagons and carts, oxen, pony, um, but they were, they were a sad lot and poverty stricken, the whole of them, he writes.
0: And do we know what would, uh, make that many that large of a number of people leave all at once, or was this just a common sort of steady flow of people that were unhappy and disaffected leave the area?
1: Safety in numbers. Um, you know, you probably want to get into, um, your, your, uh, destroying angels. I am guessing now because, uh, you left and you left just by yourself or you left with five of you and, uh, Probably were never seen again.
0: Now explain that to me, because when you know, I've always been afraid to to touch on this topic, because I was always the imp, under the impression, and admittedly, I have not done a lot of research. I've read a couple of Quinn's books, but that this was sort of speculation, and we don't have a lot of proof that the Danites kind of moved on into the. Utah period, but can you talk about the Destroying Angels? Tell, tell us about the, the main characters. I know Porter Rockwell and Bill Hickman were involved.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, there are a lot. Um, you know, uh, let me just read something. This is from a, uh, almost you would say a church court. Uh, Brigham Young is, um, Presiding, some of the 12 are there this is in uh uh i don't know if it's winter quarters or where exactly but it's december 9th 1847 is the is when this is happening and george d grant who was also one of the danites uh in missouri and one of the thought of as one of the destroying angels in utah so this is not, this is a pretty tough guy. Okay. We're not talking about some wimp here. We're talking about a guy who, who had seen some bloodshed already. And he, when I read you this, you're going to go, wow, he was even shocked by this. So here's, here's what he records about a discussion with John D. Lee. He says, brother John D. Lee said to me that Brigham told him if he would give up Emmeline, and it's Emmeline Free, who actually became Brigham Young's favorite wife. For like 15 years or 20 years, she was she was his probably his favorite wife for the longest period. Anyway, so Brigham said that if Lee would give up because Lee had, was going to marry um, the two sisters, Emmeline and I can't remember her sister's name, maybe Emily. Anyway, uh, to him, he would uphold him in, to- in time and eternity, and he never should fall but that he would sit at his right hand in his kingdom. Brother Lee also said that he frigged Louisa free. I'm sorry, that's right, it's Louisa free. She's Emmeline's sister. So anyway, Brother Lee said he had frigged Louisa free 20 times in one night. And I told him I did not believe it. He called God and angels to witness that he told the truth. I then told him he was a bigger fool than I thought he was if he would allow his arse to run away with his head. He said he believed he had the devil in him, for he could not get satisfied. He went home from here after frigging so often and frigged all the women he had in his house. Also told him, the names crossed out, Me that Emmeline Woolsey was a dirty little strumpet and if she went to St. Louis or St. Joseph where her brother was, that she would allow everybody to frig her and he would not take care, take her when she came back. This is the kind of men that Brigham Young associated with. Uh, in the new Council of Fifty book that's coming out, there's an entry from John D. Lee's journal in a meeting in early Utah. This is territorial, state of, state of Deseret kind of stuff. Okay. So on June 26, 1849, this is, um, from Lee's diary. At nine, agreeable to adjournment, the Council of 50 convened. The first business before House was the case of Ira E. West. The Council agreed that he had forfeited his head. But the difficulty was how he should be disposed of. Some were of the opinion that to execute him publicly under the traditions of the people would not be safe. But to dispose of him privately would be the most practicable and would result in the greatest good. The people would not that would know that he was gone in some strange manner and that would be all they could suggest. But fear would take hold of them and they would tremble for fear in, and it would be their next time. So as the meeting wore on, uh, they then said, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't go this far. Maybe we should actually set up a, um, a real jury system and, and real judge system. And, and then we try them and then execute them. And, uh, but Brigham Young, At the end of it says, well, you know, let's get back to Ira West. He goes, um, you know, if he, if he does, if he just happens to lose his head, he says, I'll forgive his debt then. (laughs) And, and, uh, um, Juanita Brooks and her humor in, in her source note on that or her end note is that it's up to the reader to guess what Brigham Young wanted to do. So. These were the kind of guys that set up uh let's
0: no, go. I just wanted to point out to the to the listeners because I always assumed when I had heard about the Danites being set up in in you know Nauvoo or even in the Nauvoo legion or i sorry camp of Israel that they uh were there to protect the saints from, you know, the mobs, but actually they were they were set up to protect the saints from themselves, right? To protect from dissenters. And there's the famous, you know, they called them the whistling elders. They would sit out on the porch and they would whistle a tune and flash their Bowie blades while while they would whittle as a threat to anyone that, you know, was, you know, in At risk of apostasy. And so what you're talking about in the Council of Fifty Minutes, and this is why, you know, people speculate that they've been secret for so long, is because there's talk of this group, the Danites sort of moving on to Utah, because a lot of these characters moved on to Utah and kept those attitudes that it was their job in building up the kingdom to protect the saints from dissenters. And we have stories from Quinn about, you know, skulls being found on mountaintops, almost sacrificially killed and those kinds of stories. Right.
1: Right. That's right. Um, you know, it, it, just a point, um, or a comment that, um, the Danites are a Missouri thing. And by the time they got to Nauvoo, and set up, there were no more Danites. The Danites were gone at that point. Um, in the sense that they no longer called themselves. They had something way better.
0: Okay. They what,
1: had what was that? the Navu Legion and the Navu Legion was under the city uh, charter and they didn't need Danites anymore. The police force and they also had the Navu High Council or high The Nauvoo City Council, which created the police force. So they had something way better than Danites.
0: They actually Um, had, pardon, uh, they actually had the law behind them this time, is what you're saying.
1: Right. They had some legality. Now, in Missouri, Missouri is interesting because they did have Danites in Missouri and they did have the, uh, militia. Um, so they actually did have a state militia and there, there was overlap obviously between the two. And so in that way, it's sort of hard to know who's doing what too, because like at the, and I'm, you know, this is going way off, but at the battle of Crooked River, um, they were technically a state militia killing Another, they were killing another state militia. And that's why it was treasonous what they did. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, sorry. I didn't mean to get off on that. I just wanted to, you know, in my mind, again, someone who has not researched this, I always assumed that, that the, Destroying angels were an offshoot of the Danites, so that's helpful. So, how did the destroying angels? Let's talk. Let's go back into the Utah period. We yeah. know that Brigham he had legal he had legal control, but he also had this sort of secret police. Is that too strong of a term for what these men were doing?
1: Oh, they no, they were definitely a secret police. I I still think we should, if you don't mind, I, I think we need to talk about at least one more of of these guys, and and Hickman. Hickman was actually. Uh, we're gonna let's talk about Bill Hickman a little bit, but Hickman said in to a uh, New York newspaper, he said we never worked together. He said we always worked by ourselves, so that if uh, one of us was caught, they couldn't rat on the others, um, which is really an interesting way of of dealing with that situation um, matter of fact the newspaper man who was I guess one of the top correspondents during the Civil War his name was George Alfred Townsend and he called this is during the Missouri stuff or just after the Missouri stuff but he called Hickman a Missouri border ruffian a polygamist and a human hyena um, wow yeah. And Brigham Young's older brother, Joseph Young, wrote Brigham a letter. And this, this again is happening in, uh, the, um, eastern side of Nebraska. So winter quarters, that area. And it's actually at Canesville is where this massacre occurred. And so Joseph Young's writing to his brother on June 26, 1849, and says Joseph Young says to his brother about how there were these this this little village of Indians, of men, women and children, and they were near the Mormon settlement in Canesville. And there had been something going on with horses, but you know there was the, these Indians were, were there peaceful and Joseph saying you know i saw nothing is everything all the information i'm getting they didn't do anything and so then he describes how hickman and a bunch a group of other mormon men go after this little group of men women and children and hickman he talks describes how hickman's riding his horse and he's chasing the indian all over the the one of the indian men all over the camp and finally chases him into the water. And as the, the man is swimming away, trying to get away from Hickman, Hickman on his horse pulls his gun up and shoots him. And, uh, as the Indian is finally works his way out of the water, he, uh, crawls back towards the, his little camp and there dies. Um, and, and then, you know, Hickman's doing this multiple times to multiple men and along with the other marks It's, it's not just Hickman, but, but the other. And so young, uh, Joseph Young then writes to his brother at the end of the letter. He says this. He says, brother Jones and Thomas Butterfield buried him thus, meaning the Indian who died right next to, uh, where they were standing. And by the way, these two guys went and had lunch while this poor Indian was leaning up against a fence rail and bled to death and died. So those two guys aren't much. But anyway, they buried the Indian. He says, I have given you as briefly as possible the history of this bloody fray. It reminds me of the tragic scene at Hans Mill, not as extensive, but equally as great an outrage on the principles of humanity. And every person in this country should blush for humanity's sake. According to its magnitude from the from the foregoing, it appears that the outrage was unprovoked on the part of the Indians, and without counsel or pretext for such cruelty. William Hickman is a cold-blooded murderer, and as such he stands before every tribunal of justice in heaven and on earth, and when the judge of all the men on earth makes inquisition for innocent blood, it will be found dripping from the hands of William Hickman. Now remember, this letter is written in 1849. For the next 20 years or so, Hickman has free access to Brigham Young. He can walk into Brigham Young's office anytime he wants. He gets letters from Brigham Young of appointments. He gets letters of of telling people whenever Hickman's going around, to make sure that people do give Hickman whatever he needs to get stuff done young knew that this man was a cold-blooded murderer his own brother and and Joseph Young I've always felt was a good decent person and this you know his older brother who was a good decent per- person saw that Hickman was a cold-blooded murderer and Brigham had no problem having him do whatever. It wasn't until Hickman went to the press and started telling about the atrocities that Hickman, that that young um, excommunicated him and put a, you know, threatened his life and all that other stuff.
0: Well, th- this is what's great about um, Hickman and Rockwell. These are the characters that, you know, the Western frontier sort of dramas are made from right these guys were rugged they were said to have multiple relationships wild relationships with wild characters and with women um they they were involved in some really bloody scandals and uh conflicts and things like this so these guys are your every every stereotype of a western sort of villain or um ruffian that you can think of these guys fit the bill right
1: yeah, they're cold-blooded murderers. Uh, there's just no way around it. And you know, we've liked to, particularly Rockwell. You know, we as a people have liked to um,
0: romanticize. Really make him
1: in. Pardon.
0: Romanticize.
1: Yes, romanticize. Perfect, perfect. Yes, romanticize him. He he was he had no problem killing. Anybody. It didn't matter whether it was a child, whether it was a, a man who was running away from him, trying to escape from him, whether the man, you know, had already been shot and Rockwell would just walk up and put a bullet in his head. Um, these were not nice people. These were not good people.
0: And these are, you know, these Brigham would know this and he used this to sort of solidify his power, right? He used men like this.
1: Absolutely
0: and so and they terrorize and, and
1: terrorize the people terrorize the people
0: so explain that to me i want to i wanted this podcast to talk about the violence that is occurring and how it related to polygamy so in from my study what i'm seeing is there is an increase of marriages you know in the mormon Refor- reformation and we have a lot of you know someone had quoted that every girl 14 and older had been snapped up so we we see a shortage of women start, starting to happen. We hear sermons of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and other apostles saying, Hey, save all the, the girls for us to that end. Um, did that play a part in the, in this sort of violence? That's a oh, really I, broad I, question.
1: I, I believe it did. You know, as we, as you talked about with, um, you know, there was, um, the, I think it was a hundred, People on Christmas Day in Salt Lake when Steptoe had, uh, left, um, his junior officers in charge and he had to go deal with some other issues. And, um, you know, clearly the violence was all around, uh, the interaction between the soldiers and, uh, the, um, uh, and the the women um and you know you go back to john i mean yeah the violence and 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 how the the men really needed women being brought in they didn't need women leaving and when a hundred women left with steptoe uh and to get to california that was a, a huge loss, particularly when, you know, there's only, I don't remember, maybe 20,000 people in all of the, the, the Utah settlements. And, you know, you've got a, a huge number of women leaving at these different intervals. Um, it, it really, uh, put a strain on, on these guys wanting to have more than one wife and you're right you're absolutely right about uh Wilford Woodruff writing w- writing that letter um saying that yeah there was uh they couldn't you know there was no young women to find to marry um under the you know, except under the age of 14 you know that's uh, the, the and they were marrying girls as young as uh, 11 years old during that time
0: Well, and, Um, and, you know, from, from an average Mormon man's perspective of that time, it's like you said, so there's a shortage of girls. And, and two episodes ago, I talked about the rhetoric that was starting to ramp up about how if you wanted to preside at all, if you had any sort of political or uh, spiritual or religious aspirations at all, or if you just wanted to provide better for your family, polygamy was a really good route to do that because they really tied presiding with polygamy, and they wouldn't give you a priesthood office to preside over another polygamist unless you were a polygamist. So it really put a lot of these men in a bind. There's a shortage of women. Women are unhappy, and women are leaving. So when the soldiers come, this is a huge issue, right?
1: Oh, definitely. And and women, you know, from everything that I've read, Women weren't enthusiastic as you, um, in your podcast about, uh, women in private not being pleased with polygamy. Um, that was pretty general, I get the feeling as I read. I, I don't find a lot of women being enthusiastic. Now, there were, there were some, there were some, and, you know, I shouldn't say none, but, but there were, uh, uh some women. But I would suggest that, that the vast majority, uh, we're not particularly enthusiastic about it. They were faithful. They, they were women who believed in Mormonism. They had given up family members. Uh, they, had, you know, um, a woman who's, who was Brigham Young's last wife. Her name is Hannah Tapfield King Young after she married Brigham Young. Um, but she, left uh, a huge english farm she was well off her her parents were well off her husband was well off he had come from an affluent family they weren't royals by any means um but they were they were well off they were well educated they were country gentry and they uh they had land they had employees um you know they were quite well and when she converted, um, her brother, who was she, she was extremely close to, said, "That's it. Um, I have nothing to do with you." And oh, and they were members of the of the Church of England, obviously. And so, you know, they were they had social standing, all of that. And he said, "That's it. I'm I'm not going to have anything to do with you again." And they, as far as we know, they never spoke again. You know, even writing, they never even wrote letters back and forth. Um, her parents, her mother died shortly after she converted and and the family lore is that she died of a broken heart of her daughter converting to Mormonism. Um, her father, she had no contact with her father again. Her husband didn't join until the Reformation, um, gave up everything, gave up his family and came uh, to Zion and... um he ultimately lost his wife. But, but my point is though, these women also gave up everything in that way. And, and so it wasn't easy for them to back out of polygamy. It, it never was easy for them. Um, and, and then being in the West, um, and being you know, susceptible to everything that's going on in the West, uh, um, creates a real dependency for these women to be able to, to be able to survive. And, and so for them to have somebody to build a house, um, the Vienna Jacques, who was one of Joseph Smith's plural wives did you do a podcast on Vienna Jacques
0: no not yet
1: okay well Vienna Jacques um gave up a social standing in Boston um she had money I mean she had everything and she converted to Mormonism and gave it all up for Joseph Smith um to be able to buy land uh and and um and be able to, uh, move people around and things like that. So she gave all that up. And so when the, they get to, uh, to Utah, to Deseret, um, she writes Brigham Young a letter. And in the letter, she says, that you know, she's pleading with him, saying, "You know, I, I've been waiting to hear from you. You you said you were going to pick a lot out for me. Um, I'm really hoping that the lot is close to the temple and, and to where I can walk to meeting. And to actually, she says to walk to church. Uh, and she says, and and uh, W. W. Phelps came to me." and told me that there is no lot for me near the temple and that I'm going to have to be far away. And he says, but if, if I will agree to be in his family, he'll build a place for me to where I can, can be. But she goes, but I can't, I can't do it. Um, and area Phelps was (laughs) not a fun person. I get the feeling to be around anyway, from the things I've read. Um, and, and she says, she says, uh, and then so I approached Marianne, who was Brigham's, uh, second wife, but first wife in the, the pecking order because his first wife had died. Um, this is
0: Marianne Angel, right?
1: Right. And so, um, he, she, Vienna Jacques says, so, you know, I came to Marianne and she rebuffed me because, you know, you, because you have no money and no no way to help me and so i i have no place to live and she goes and then at the end of her letter she says um and uh i can't make it through another wind and and so uh she says at the end of her letter she says she goes i can't make it through another winter winter she says my wagon um canvas uh, is, is completely gone. There's holes and I have nothing to protect me. This is a woman who had everything and gave it all up for her faith, for her religion and for Joseph Smith. And here she is in Utah in that first group that gets there and she has nothing.
0: And she's begging she, for it.
1: And she's begging, Joseph, she's begging Brigham Young for everything.
0: And she wouldn't be alone. I mean, we have, we have so many stories of women constantly. I mean, I'm sure his desk was full of letters because we know his own wives had to beg for things for him. They, many of them couldn't see him directly. They had to make appointments with his secretary to even have a conversation with him. But let's let's end this episode, and I want to do one more um, as a follow-up, and I want to talk about uh, the Utah Expedition and what happens there and then what happens after in the aftermath and how these women are involved. Does that sound good?
1: That sounds great. That sounds great, Nancy.
0: Well, thanks so much, Joe, for coming on this episode, and thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope you are excited for the follow-up episode that will be posted in a few days. So thanks, Joe.
1: Oh, thanks, Lindsay. Good night.
0: Good night.